In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, the theme of departure is on my mind tonight. Uh, we're saying goodbye to uh, certain graduates from this place, uh, senior students that we've known and cared for are leaving this zip code and all that uh, goes with it. And for some of you, that's a very happy occasion. Some of you are very sad about it. Uh, I myself am experiencing a myriad of emotions right now because I'm also about to depart and go, uh, go on a sabbatical for three months and uh, have been touched by the, um, the consistent encouragement I've received from this church and its leaders uh, regarding that time away. But I'm going to miss you a great deal. And I'll think about you a lot, and I hope to walk with God a lot and uh, pray about you when I'm gone. But you're in really good hands. You know, Eric is not only, um, don't let his size fool you. I know he's imposing. <laughs> he has more substance than I've got, but he's, uh, he's got a very uh, um, able pastoral sense and heart. And, uh, and so I leave him as the spiritual authority in this place, and uh, I'm very happy that he's here. Uh, today marks an even more substantial uh, departure, uh, the departure of Jesus Christ, who is departing, in a sense, uh, from the world um, in, in an act that we call the Ascension, in which the physically risen Jesus is absorbed, if you will, into God's eternity again. And, and he, uh, he's there in an in unbreakated presence. And, um, but before Jesus ascends, he prays, not for his disciples, though he does that too. He prays for us, the inheritors of the apostolic witness. He prays for us who are in Slippery Rock. He prays for us who, who, who speak English and other languages. He prays for us um, as we exist now. And he prays uh, in this high priestly prayer, that's what it's been called, he prays for unity. He prays that we would be one. And so I'd like to speak tonight about internal unity within the body, internal unity, and its external effect. Uh, unity, I think, is the exception to life. I wish, I wish that that was not the case. I wish it were different. But I think true unity, uh, true camaraderie, togetherness, uh, a real flow um, in life is the exception rather than the rule. We don't see it in the current political uh, scene where people are labeling one another and engaging in name-calling and things that would belong on the playground in seventh grade uh, that some people pathologically have not been able to get over. <laughs> therapy, therapy. Um, uh, also, uh, it's, it's, we don't see unity in public discourse. You know, uh, you may know that Pope Francis tweets. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I, for me, I, I even think that the office of the papacy is probably too exalted uh, to tweet, but he tweets, and his tweets are pretty like mundane. It's sort of, Jesus loves you very much, and I hope you have a very nice day. And, uh, and, but you would not believe the vitriol the hatred, um, the innuendo that 
comes after those comments by people who, who think of themselves as rather rational atheists. Um, therapy, therapy. Anyway, <laughs> repentance, therapy. Um, uh, but, but, but it, you know, uh, it's more than this. We see it in, in our um, marriages, where we don't really talk about what matters because that's too deep and too difficult and too dark, and so we just roll on year after year ignoring the crisis. Uh, we see it in family experience. Um, I was just at a family gathering for Mother's Day today, and maybe you were at one too. But don't you, okay, this has never happened to me, but don't you think that, that regarding a relative or two, an alien abduction like wouldn't be such a bad thing? <laughs> saying. Um, or maybe it's a work situation where you deal with people that are endlessly competitive and very, very petty. Or maybe you've seen somebody recently in a grocery store whom you hate, or to use Christian language, whom you're praying for. <laughs> and you, and you, you leave the grocery store instead of purchase what you came to purchase because you don't want to see this person. Okay. But I think division is it. I think it's the ebb and flow. I think that's the ebb and flow. I think that's how it works. It's, uh, it's so true in our lives and so formative in our lives, and yet we can't escape the deep, deep feeling that division, as we know it, is not the way it should be. We have this Edenic idea in our minds that, that hails from yesteryear that things were supposed to be different than the way they are. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get back to that embryonic, Edenic ideal? And so tonight I'd like to talk about uh, unity and its external effect. Jesus' prayer for us is rich in the language of an internal unity. Did you notice the even wild language of overlapping personalities interconnected categories, right? The Son is present in the Father. The Father is present in the Son. The Son is present in us. And we are present in the Father because we are present in the Son. Uh, and there are all these words repeated. The word one is, is um, oft mentioned. Uh, he talks about complete unity. And it's this picture of everything being together. The beautiful prayer of Jesus is that in his people, there would be no like competition and backbiting and angling and shunning and passive-aggressive behavior. It wouldn't be like that, that there would be this uh, calm solemnity, this connection, this holy way of relating in which we would be different in how we act than the world is. I mean, that's the prayer. That's what he wants. And, and he talks a lot about unity in this passage, and I, I want to break it down in three uh, in three different um, ways, three different unities that are all braided together. The first is a union within God himself, between Father and Son. In verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Trinitarian language, of course, uh, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different persons, but yet united. Um, historic theologians have said that Father and Son, along with Spirit, are, uh, they, ha they share two unities. There's a unity of essence, that is, what they are in and of themselves, that they are equally God. One is not more God than the other, and they share equal glory. If you want to get an expanded view of the Cliff Notes version I just gave you, 
uh, check out the Athanasian Creed, which takes 27 minutes to profess in church together. Um, that was supposed to be really funny. It wasn't. I'm going to move on now. Um, but really, it's really, really long, and it expresses these ideas. But unity of essence made of the same substance. But also, and almost as important, a unity of purpose. That is, they do the same sorts of things. They're purposed in the same way, aligned in the same way. Um, the Father and Son are not at odds with each other, if you will. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 5, verse 19, I only do what I see my Father doing. That the script was written for Jesus, and he aligns himself with that script and acts it out in his own life, that Father and Son share the same purpose. I mention this only because we sometimes have an off... Uh, our Trinitarian theology is a little off. You may have believed in, in, in your own um, soul something like this, that there is a division in the Godhead, particularly related to the death of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is very, very kind, and God the Father is not. He's, all he is is like this volcano. He's a volcano, and he just can't wait to erupt. Um, and so Jesus is, but Jesus wants the Father to be nicer. So he dies in order to take the treasure chest of mercy from the cold hands of the angry Father. And that way he can give it to us. Now the Father doesn't like you and never ever will. But Jesus does, and he wants to sort of persuade his Father along. Not only is that overly anthropomorphic, it's not biblical. Remember in John's Gospel, chapter 3, that it was for God, that is the Father, so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They're on the same team here, Father and Son working together to achieve this. Yes, God is a God of justice, but the good news of the atonement is that he's taken justice upon himself so that we don't have to suffer fairness. Remember the Merchant of Venice, for as you urge on justice, be assured you shall have justice more than you desire. Uh, don't ask for justice from God, it's not worth it. Um, but instead, Father and Son are aligned for the purposes of mercy. So there's a union within God himself. You are in, uh, you are in me and I am in you. There's also a union in this, uh, expressed in this text between God and those who believe. Jesus says in verse 23, I will be in them and you in me. And he talks about they who believe in me. Believe in the one whom you have sent. Uh, this is the idea of Christianity, that our religion is about remarriage. That's what it's about. It's about remarriage. Uh, this is the whole idea from the beginning and end of Scripture, that it was, we were at one with our Creator. There's a reason John's using this language, this intimate language of oneness, uh, because it's represented in our relationship with God. We are the bride of Christ, you know? I mean, this is the idea. And in Eden, we divorced him and said, I don't want to see you anymore. I don't want you. And even if you say you love me, I don't care. It is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Right? And so we went away, and he, he goes to hell and back to win us again and brings us to this renewal of vow ceremony at the cross. And he wins us back and makes us his own, bringing parties back together again. And that's why the New Testament's language regarding the God-human relationship is so intimate, so close, 
The language is never, um, it's, it's never deistic, suggesting a, a distance between us and our maker. The language is that we are in Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature, right? All this language suggests that there's this braiding between us and the infinite whom we know in Christ. So there's a union between God and those who believe. Lastly, and this is really the thrust of Jesus' prayer, there's a union within the believing community itself, between believers. This is what he says in verse 21, I pray that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Notice our unity is a modeled unity. It is based on the Father's unity with the Son, a very tall order in many ways, but this is the, this is the picture, the gift that we've been given, um, the image that should stick with us about Christian unity that defies the disunity in our very troubled, aching, hurting world. Uh, just as God, the Father, and the Son have a unity of essence and unity of purpose, we're to reflect that too. Uh, we do in Christianity have a, a unity of essence in, in the sense of essential belief. This text talks about those who believe in Jesus. We're not just un, a unified collective because, because we all like to, you know, waste, so to speak, a Sunday evening. I was saying this this morning about the morning on Sunday, but it's true of the Sunday evening as well. Wouldn't it be nice to, to stay home and read the New York Times and have a cigarette? I'm, Okay, I, I, I don't believe that, but I mean, don't you, I mean, wouldn't that be really terrific just to have a night off, you know, and watch a movie? So, but, but we're here, and, and, but we're not here just to see each other, though that's like part of it, right? It's, it's more than that. We want to have an encounter here. We want, to, we want to believe in Christ together. We're here because of Jesus. Our unity doesn't just come from ourselves wanting to be unified. It's defined by Jesus himself. The parameters are those who believe in him. And you see, some Christians say something that gets to me. They say, let's not talk about like big doctrinal ideas, right? It's, this was said in the late 90s. Cre- it's, it's deeds, not creeds, right? That's what was said. So don't worry about like belief. Back when I was part of the old church um, in a different denomination, uh, they, they used to say, isn't it beautiful that we can all come to the communion table together, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, and we can all, we can all share in communion. And I'm like, that's crap. Like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. Because why would you want to partake in communion if you don't believe in Jesus, the one who said he would be present in the meal? Like, it, what? It doesn't make sense. I, you, you understand. There has to be some sort of agreement in this core idea of who Jesus is and what he's about, an agreement on the apostolic witness of this Christ. Or else we shouldn't be playing the game. It doesn't make any sense. And so a unity of essence or essential belief, but we also share a unity of purpose, not only what we believe, but what we do, how we, are, how we carry ourselves, and, and that, that our behavior is supposed to align with those beliefs. Um, you know, many Christians think that the only thing that matters is not only right belief, but very, very, very specific right belief. Like, more specific than the Bible. If your catechism is longer than the scripture, something just might be wrong. I mean, something is wrong. Um, 
the brevity of the 39 ar articles of religion recommend themselves. I'm just, uh, recommends itself, I'm just saying. But, um, but, but some people get very specific about right beliefs, and if you don't agree exactly as they do, they get a little mean. I was having a very funny conversation that was, especially, that was exceptionally convicting uh, whenever I was uh, planting this church, and, and, and somebody was talking with me about theology and different authors that I liked or didn't like. And, uh, and, and so he said, okay, just so I know, Ethan, just so I'm clear, the people that you especially like in Christianity are Anglican Christians who lean into the Protestant side of Anglicanism, who happen to be Reformed, but not so Reformed that they get mean um, and, and unbearable, and yet they have a Lutheran kind of spattering of, of the proper distinction between law and gospel, and only like half of N.T. Wright's books. <laughs> he said, you're going to have a very small church. <laughs> You know, eight people who could possibly, you know, fulfill that cri those criteria. Anyway, uh, so it gets it gets a little nuts at times, right? But it's more than just perfect agreement on details that even Scripture isn't clear about. Uh, it's it's um it's 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 how we function. It's it's our charity that binds us, as well as our confession. It's the love that we have for each other. The greatest of these is love, and without that, you know, our orthodoxy can 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 cut. It can hurt. We need both of those things. Unity of essence and unity of purpose. And so this is, you see the beautiful thing that Jesus is laying out here? He's saying that you, you exist in this world of, of bitter encounters in grocery stores. But this community that I'm establishing, I don't want it to be that way. I want it in a, in a small way to be a reversal of the fall. I want it to end the divisiveness that began in Eden. I want it to put things back together. That's why Pentecost is so beautiful, you know, because the gospel is heard by all these people in various stations and languages, bringing them back together. But in Jesus' prayer, he, he, he tells us that there's an external effect to an internal unity. Did you catch that when he talks about the world here? The world that he loves, remember? He says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. The external effect is evangelistic. Did you catch that? The, the, the unity of the church causes belief in those who don't yet believe. When the church's essence and purpose match the Lord's essence and purpose, that is true oneness in the groove aligned with God, then the world deduces that the church's profession isn't nonsense, but is in fact true and credible and it convinces them that the Father really did send the Son. Because look at the result on the ground and how beautiful it is. I've talked about my friend Janet here who uh, was a convert um, to, uh, um, to a Christianity from Judaism. Uh, her family, it was, it's a celebrity family, and, and, and being a non-religious Jew and not a Christian was important. It was important. But she converted, and I asked her, well, why did you convert? And she said, well, Jesus Christ? And I'm like, well, 
I said, yes, I, like I know, but, uh, but uh, how did you meet this Jesus Christ? And, and she said, well, the thing is, the, the church was so different than my family. The church had imperfect people, but they were people who were trying to love each other, and they were trying to figure this thing out, and they gave me space to ask some questions and to be imperfect, and they really cared about me, and my family didn't. And so it was, it was the witness of believers that were touched by Jesus Christ that convinced me that there was something going on here. I was putting my feet onto something stable. I could enter into something real. And maybe you've had a similar experience. Um, but a human unity in Christ brings people to God because it's reminiscent of God's own inner unity. It rings true. And yet... There is a negative foil to what Jesus Christ is saying here and praying here. If unity among Christians can bring others to faith, then by contrast, disunity can do just the opposite. It can prevent people from having any faith at all. Because they look at us and see us as people who can't agree on anything, so why bother? In other words, disunity not only afflicts and affects the inner life of the church, it creates a, to quote one politician, a huge wall uh, between us and the world. It creates a wall. In other words, it, it doesn't just injure us, it injures the world around us, who then are deafened to the message of a fountain filled with blood. So, um, Jesus prayed that his community would represent a reversal of the fall, a return to innocence, if you will. And in light of Jesus' prayer, we have to look at the reality on the ground and mourn. Oh, we just have to, right? Because it's not great. Uh, in a way, the church resembles not so much a whole body, but a dismembered figure. Uh, torn in doctrine, interpretation, structure, and often bloody history. No person and no portion of the church has been infallible in any sense of that word. Uh, it is a small comfort to me that the twelve disciples had a difficult time themselves fulfilling Jesus' prayer, and yet it's a very limited comfort. Um, but I, I'm thinking these days about how do we inch toward this vision? I'm not sure big-picture ecumenicism always does it, though there are times for it. it. tends to paper over some really difficult issues that we need to spend time talking through. But I think there is a small e, um, ecumenism, that could help us. Here are a few ideas about how we might consider the unity of the body of Christ, even as it's been torn asunder. First, to realize that the church already is one, whether we see it or not. In the Nicene Creed, we profess, in, uh, we profess to believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The fact that it is not materialized in our eyes does not mean it doesn't exist. And we certainly know one day it will exist in all its fullness in the eschaton. Secondly, we have to have eyes to see and eyes that mourn. Eyes to see and eyes that mourn our own errors, blind spots, insecurities, and those in the traditions we represent. Third, we have to refrain about lying. We have to refrain from lying about or exaggerating the beliefs of other Christians. I was once in a uh, in a discussion group where uh, a priest of another tradition was busting on the doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, he did he hadn't understood the doctrine, 
but he was speaking with great anger about it, and I was able to give a very, I want to say, very kind rebuttal, saying, um, he was saying, sola scriptura means that, you, that, that Protestants believe that you don't need anything but scripture. It's just you and your private interpretation. I'm like, no, no, no. Nobody ever meant that by the doctrine when it was, when it was coined. The idea is that scripture alone is revealed from God, and tradition, while necessary and important, uh, is, a, um, is a rolling uh, uh, entity, a collection of data that is, that is reflection upon that revelation and is important because it's part of the witness of the church, but it's not to be um, put as equal in terms of Scripture, nor is it to be over Scripture, but under it, checked by it. That was a helpful clarification for him. Uh, but I've had to have clarification in my own life. When I was young, and I used to talk to, you know, Aunt Shirley, uh, a very faithful Roman Catholic who said, I'm very scared of Jesus, so I worship Mary. I thought, well, clearly Aunt Shirley is representing Catholicism in all of its, you know, in all of its truth. Until I talked to a priest and said, oh, no, like worshiping Mary is blasphemous. We don't do that. We're not permitted to do that. She said, we, we, we tend to like her more than you and honor her more than you do, um, but we're not to worship her. And I said, that's interesting. Helpful clarification. So it's probably best as we engage in ecumenical dialogue not to lie about people, um, or maybe not to assume the worst. Uh, fourth, it's important to favor true unity over historic distinctives. It's okay to honor our particularities and peculiarities, but not over that which Jesus expressly commanded, which is to prize the unity of the church. Next, I think we should prize Scripture over our own opinions, and have it keep checking us, semper, reformanda, the church is always reforming according to that original standard. Lastly, I think it's important to pursue opportunities for hospitality and charity with uh, sister and brother Christians, because we can learn from them, they can learn from us. We all have blind spots that we're blind to. Um, Just a few thoughts about how some of these things might be handled, at least on a local level. I want to close now with some words of oneness. Words of unity, unity for this church, for graduating students, and then for all of us. So this church, I am saying goodbye to you for a little while. I want to thank you for all your love and support. Um, One of the odd things about this congregation is that we have no Anglicans in it. That is, nobody who from birth uh, is an Anglican. We tend to attract people from a wide range of faith or no faith backgrounds, Because of our diversity, friends, we have within us the potential for a thermonuclear meltdown at any moment. (laughs) But it's never happened. And the reason that it's never happened is because we have a singular unifying obsession, which is the gospel of God's grace given to sinners. We shelter in the rocky crag of grace that stands against the tsunami that breaks the rocks into pieces. The cave of grace has room for all of us, room for us not only to survive, but to heal. So I'm going to leave you for a bit, but in my absence, please keep the unity of the gospel. Please be nice to Eric. (laughs) Please love him and his family well. Please pray for each other and be kind and love each other. A word to our graduates. I hope that we, in some sense, have helped you maybe even in a small way, but helped you to know that Christ will always be enough for you and that whether your life is from now on 
understood or perceived as a success or a failure, it doesn't matter. Climbing and ambition don't matter. Not at all. All is grace. From first to last. And that your life is covered in mercy. And that to quote Brennan Manning, whom I quote too much, that in Christ God loves you as you are and not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. That is going to be as true for you in 20 years as it is right now. And so just cling to that, come what may, and there will always be a place for you at this table and in this church. And we love you very much, and we won't forget you. And a word to all of us. To show you how ecumenical I am, I'm going to quote a pope. <laughs> so when Pope John XXIII was dying of an agonizing stomach cancer, um, you know, his sister died of the same thing just a year before he left the world and went to be with God. He was about to depart this life, and he gave what he knew was likely to be his final speech to the first portion of the Second Vatican Council. He offered these final, non-scripted words from a deep pastoral heart. And I share his sentiments entirely. I hope that we all do. He said, In many countries on Christmas Eve, a light is put in the window of every house so that Joseph and Mary, passing by in desperate search of refuge, may know that there is a family awaiting them around a table spread with the good things given by God. Wherever I may go in this world, if you pass by my house at night in distress, you will find a light in my window. So knock. Please knock. I will not ask you where you have been or what you have done. Enter my house. For my brotherly arms will embrace you, and my warm heart will rejoice at your coming. Amen.